Well, again, welcome to Life Church. It is so great to have you with us here today. It's great to have our West Campus there in the Brookfield area, as well as our Appleton Campus and online campus. Can we take a moment and just welcome everyone here with us today? So great to have you here. My name is Noel Miller, and I'm one of the staff pastors here at the church. And over the course of the summer, Pastor Aaron has given us the ability to share, and I'm, I'm excited and humbled at the opportunity to do that this weekend. I hope everyone's summer is going well as we're wrapping things up, that you're marking everything off the summer to-do list and maybe squeezing in one more vacation in there as I know school starts back in a couple days, maybe week for some. And so I know in the family focus department, we have finished up with our summer camps and our missions trips. And, and for us, it's one of the most exciting times of the year uh, to be able to go to camp and see our, uh, maybe it's a kid for the first time or the fifth time, but really watch as God uses that week as a catalyst for some students uh, year or, or maybe even their life and, and watch what God does in that moment. And then mission trips, uh, quite frankly, they're very humbling uh, to watch as 12, 13, 14, 18, 17 year old kids are, are used by God on the inner city of Minneapolis as well as the streets of Haiti and and watch as these young kids are praying for grown men, grown women, and, and they have obstacles in their lives that are far greater than these kids understand. But to watch as they pray for them and, and see how God uses their life is a um, very humbling experience. It's something that is a personal passion of my husband and I just to travel and see God leverage culture to explain the story of Jesus to people. It's an exciting thing to be a part of. As a matter of fact, right after we got married, when we were seniors in college, we spent a couple of months in Calcutta, India, and we were there for a little while, and then we had to come back home for a family emergency, but when things kind of calmed down, we went back. And we went from uh, Atlanta, which is our hometown, Atlanta to Mumbai, and then from Mumbai to Calcutta. And if I'm honest with you, um, I love to travel. I love airports. I love people watching in airports. I love missions trips, but I do not like flights. I get real nervous. Like, it is a matter of prayer for me. Like, I get anxious the whole nine. Like, it is something that I struggle with. And so that day, as we were flying from Atlanta to Mumbai, it would have been the longest amount of time I would have been in the air. Like, I've flown to China, and it, we broke that up a little bit. But from Atlanta to Mumbai was crazy, okay? I was really struggling as we were going to the airport. And we found ourselves at the very end of the line, waiting to get and board the plane there at the gate. And... Uh, the gay agent comes up to us and he says, I noticed that you guys are a little bit taller. Would you want the exit row? And I thought, yes, Lord Jesus, hallelujah. Um, a little extra leg room and NyQuil go a real long way. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, I can make it. So we go up to the ticket counter there and, and the gentleman begins to, you know, do what he does on the computer. And, and he says, you know what? I'll do you one better than the exit row. And I thought, okay, whatever is better is wonderful. And so he hands us our tickets. And at this point, everyone has boarded the plane. So we're a little bit late and we're kind of rushing through it a little bit. And we grab the tickets, we grab our bags and we head down to the plane. And there the stewardess takes our ticket. And usually they tell you which aisle you're in to find your, you know, which row to find your aisle in and all of that. And and I hand her my ticket, and she straightens up, and she's like, Mrs. Miller, Mr. Miller, please follow me this way. And I'm thinking, okay, y'all, she doesn't go to the, to the right where, like, the common folks sit. 
You know what I'm saying? Like back in coach and business, the woman takes a left and heads to first class. I'm telling you what, we walked through there, and when we get to like the threshold where this man had exchanged our exit row ticket for a first class ticket all the way from Atlanta to Mumbai, as we're crossing over this threshold into first class, this phrase that my dad used to tell me all the time growing up when I would score a touchdown playing flag football and I'd start doing the dirty bird, right, because I'm from Atlanta, Football is coming. Hallelujah. Okay. Um, he'd look at me with these really big eyes and he'd say, Noel, you better act like you've been there. He said, Noel, act like you have been there. And I'd like drop the football and be like, I do this all the time. What are you talking about? Like, it's just the way I roll. Right? So as we cross that threshold into first class, I look at Kevin, we lock eyes, and we're like, we're fixing to act like we have been here. You know? I'm like, hey, Tina, how's your cousin? Like, I am in the zone of first class, and I am just enjoying life. We walk in, we put our stuff down. Me and Kevin have come up with this story in our minds about how these young 21-year-old kids in first class can afford this because we're from old Southern money, and uh, what are you talking about? We're here all the time. Like, we fly Atlanta to Mumbai, Mumbai to Atlanta. It's just what we do, you know? And so we're there, and I'm telling y'all, let me talk about first class for a minute. The seats, they recline so much, you kind of feel inverted. Like, you're laying all the way down, They give you a down comforter blanket, a pillow, nicer than the one I got at my house. They give you like a little goodie bag, and it's what my aunt would call a happy, like just to make you happy, like here you go. It had everything you needed for a flight plus some. It had lip balm, not chapstick, but like lip balm. Who needs lip balm for a flight? Apparently you do in first class. Okay, like I'm having shrimp salad for dinner. Who has shrimp salad for dinner on an airplane? First class does. Hey, like I'm telling you what, we were in the zone, and when we're in there, like, acting like we've been there before, we're kind of holding our head really high, and we're, we're, we're somebody to be in there, right? Like, we are somebody to be there, and our value in our minds is, like, through the roof. Like, you want to be us right now, right? Like, we're there. We're holding our head high. We land. We get off the plane, and we're kind of, like, strutting our stuff. We got full swagger on. I mean, like, hey, we get from that flight from Mumbai to Calcutta, and we're, like, way in the back, the very last row, like, sandwich. There's no air conditioning all the way to Calcutta from Mumbai, and it was, like, back to life, back to reality moment, you know? But when we were in first class, though, like, let's talk about that. Like, we were holding our head high. We were, we were standing tall because we, there was something that gave us value. And isn't that funny how in our lives we do that? right? There's, there's circumstances, there's accolades or acceptance or approval from someone allows us to hold our head high and make us feel worthy. You see, our culture would define worth as the level at which someone deserves to be valued. Our culture would say it's like a stair-step process, right? Your successes and your failures in life make you more worthy or less worthy, Your acceptance, the approval of people, the approval of the people around you, circumstances around you, conditions around you, make you more worthy or less worthy in the society and culture in which we live. And today, I want to talk about what it looks like from God's viewpoint. What does it look like? What does God say and have to say about value? What does he say about the level at which we deserve to be valued? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 15. Luke 15. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture will be on the screen. And, and we're going to read from the scripture here in a minute, but I, I want to set the context of the things that, that, that's happening. I want to kind of set the climate that Jesus is in, where we find him here in Luke 15. You see, at this point, Jesus has created a name for himself in, 
in different circles of life, okay? So in some circles, he's known as the healer. In some circles, he's known as the prophet or the life giver or the redeemer. And in different circles, he has different names. And in one particular circle um, with the Pharisees and the religious scholars, the people that think they are worthy enough based upon cultural circumstances, to them, he is quite frankly known to be socially scandalous because he is choosing to hang out with people that are less than. He's choosing to hang out with people that have either made a name for themselves not in the right way or, or the Bible some would call as doubtful reputation. People that had created a name for themselves in not the best way, sinners. And you see, Jesus is in this moment, and he's hanging out with these people. He's surrounded by these people of doubtful reputation. And the Pharisees show, out, show up, and the people of, of worth, based upon society, show up, and they ask Jesus a question. They look at him, and they say, Jesus, why do you hang out with bad people? It's a very logical question. The Pharisees get a really bad rap, but in this moment, they, they actually were asking a logical question. Why do you hang out with these people? Why do you associate with people like this? And this question generates this response from Jesus, and he begins to paint a picture. He begins to paint a picture of, of why, and, and he answers this question while addressing multiple crowds that were there that day. And, and he begins to tell a story about, about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one went astray, and, and he left the 99 to go find the one. And then he goes on to tell about a woman who had a crazy coin collection and turned her house upside down to try to find this lost coin that she had. And then she celebrates and throws a party for this lost coin. And, and then he gets to the story of the lost son or the prodigal son, many of us know as the wasteful son. It's about a father who has two sons, and his youngest son comes to him and and says, I want my inheritance now. And so the father gives it to him and he goes and he wastes it on wild living and wild cities. And when he comes to the end of himself, he, he comes back to his father and his, his father not only forgives him uh, for the financial issues and, and plummeting of that, he, he also celebrates him and, and throws a party for him. And they're partying so hard that the older brother that's out in the field working is offended, comes in and says, why are you celebrating this failure and the father begins to explain to him that this was my son that was once lost, but, but now he's found. And he tells all of these stories to communicate a couple of messages about worth. To the audiences there that are listening, he begins to communicate a few messages about the level at which someone deserves to be valued. You see, the first message is this. God's definition of worth is often unconventional, but it is always unconditional. God's definition of worth is often unconventional, but it is always unconditional. You see, when I read the Bible sometimes, I, I read through it from my viewpoint in life, from my context, from my surroundings. And, and I would read through these three stories, and like many of us in this room, we relate to that, that lost sheep and the lost coin and, and the lost son and, and how Jesus celebrates when, when we're found and and all of that is good and true, and it is very true. But if we take a moment and we hear it from the context of those that are listening, the audience, the people that are hearing this story for the first time, it becomes very unconventional. You see, Jesus is asked a logical question, and he responds with 
an unlogical way. He, he begins to tell the story of a shepherd who has sheep. Sheep would have been like Hondas back then. Like everybody's got them, right? They're everywhere. So here he is and he's responding. He's, he's telling the story about this shepherd who has these sheep, his livelihood, his profit. Why would a shepherd ever leave the some value that is far greater than the one that he's trying to pursue? And it's just sheep. Why, why would a shepherd ever risk his livelihood to pursue the one? It's very unconventional. You see, then he tells a story about a woman who finds a coin, finds a coin and, and the guest of honor at the party she throws is the coin she found. Like she celebrated over a coin. It's very unconventional in what he's relaying. And then you have a father who not only forgives his son of the, the failures that he's, he's made, doesn't stop at forgiveness, but he celebrates him. And passionately so. The Bible says that he ran to his son, which would have been crazy in their day and age. You see, from the standpoint of the hearer, these, these stories are very unconventional. They're very illogical in the way that Jesus describes the level at which someone deserves to be valued. You see, our culture would tell us, again, that worth, the level at which we deserve to be valued, it's a stair-step process. It's about the accomplishments, the successfulness, or maybe even your failures that would determine your worth. And Jesus is communicating a message that would say it may be unconventional, but it is always unconditional. The value that someone has in Jesus. There are no conditions that apply that would increase or decrease your value in Jesus. See, I have a younger sister and uh, growing up, she was always footloose and fancy free, like she was the younger one. And, and at 16, we had some things happen in our family. When she was 16, we had uh, a tragedy happen in our family. And, and she responded a little bit different than the rest of us. She became very public in her, in her actions that would be, uh, quite frankly, uh, an embarrassment to our family and harmful to herself. And she was very public about it, not repentant at all. And in that moment, if I'm being honest with you, um, I kind of put God's grace and his love in a conventional box that had to make sense to me. And I begin to say things like, her decisions have put her there. The choices that she's made, she's suffering those consequences. She deserves what she's getting. And I, I created this, this box that I put God's grace and love in, a conventional grace, a conventional love that applied to conditions. And then when she turned 19, she gave me a phone call and she said, hey, Noel, I just want you to know that you're going to be an aunt. I'm going to have a little girl here in a couple of months. And, and I'd like to tell you and be honest with you and say that uh, all of a sudden I got very gracious and loving. Um, but isn't it funny how we can love the unlovable in foreign countries and we can love the unlovable in our neighborhoods, but when it comes to family, it's a little bit different. And so in that moment, I became very, uh, I continued in my ungracious ways to her and unloving ways to her. And, and one day they came up for Thanksgiving and, and they're there and God begins to really work on my heart. And it begins to, uh, to talk to me about the level at which my sister deserves to be valued. The level at which anyone, no matter the conditions or circumstances, deserve to be valued. And so in that moment, I begin to change the way I talk to her. I begin to change 
my language because you see language creates culture and I, I begin to say things to her like you're an incredible mom and really meant it. You're an incredible dad. What an amazing family. The best is yet to come for your family. I'm excited about what God's going to do through your family. And it was three months later that my sister and, and her boyfriend and my, my niece, they wound up in a church in South Georgia, which is where I'm from. They give their heart and life to Christ in that moment. A few months later, they get baptized. And here in two and a half weeks, Kevin is going to get to officiate their wedding. And to think if I would have kept God in his conventional box that I had placed him in. To think if I would have kept God's love and his forgiveness and his grace in this box that had to make sense to me based upon my sister's doing, based upon her decisions, if I thought, well, that, that puts you out here and this is what grace looks like. You see, God is creating, he's communicating this message through these stories to say my worth, the level at which someone deserves to be valued is oftentimes unconventional. It doesn't fit in the boxes that we create, that we men create to put God in, but it is always unconditional. There are no conditions that apply to the value that you hold in Jesus. So he continues to tell a story in Luke 15, 11, it's the story again of the prodigal son, and it says this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the, son, the younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He pursued a local farmer to hire him, and, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father... I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the fatted calf uh, we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You see, the final message that he communicates about worth in this moment is that we are children of God, not by worth, but by birth. We are children of God, not by worth, but by birth. You see, somewhere in the son's failure, somewhere in his shortcomings, somewhere in his lack, he thought that he could earn his father's grace, that he could earn his father's love, that he could earn his father's forgiveness, that he could earn his father's favor, and that in earning it, it would it would raise the level at which he deserved to be valued. And isn't it interesting how he begins to prepare this speech? He prepares this speech to, to 
to try to account for the reasons why and, and admit how he did wrong in this fancy speech that he brings to his father. And some translations would say that when the father met him at the top of the hill, the dad cut him off, wouldn't even let him finish his, his fancy speech that he had prepared. I can imagine his journey from the wild city or the farm to his dad's house how he prepared this thing, how he went over it time and time again, thinking that if he just said something right, thinking if he just put two words together and, and really made this a powerful apology that, that he would be able to be an employee for his father. You see, the dad, he cut him off at the top of the hill and he embraced him and he, and he said, let's go have a party because it was never about what the son could do for his dad. It was about choosing his dad. It was never about what the son could do or bring or be for his son. It was just simply about choosing his father. It was just in the choice, in the moment that the son chose his father, the celebration began. You know, the Bible would say that he put clean clothes on him. He took a shower because he had been with the pigs, you know what I'm saying? Put new shoes on, and he was immediately on the dance floor having a party eating a good piece of steak, right? Some of y'all are hungry, I know. What's interesting is though that, that some of us may think, oh, that was probably a month later or, or weeks later or maybe it was three hours, maybe, a couple of hours, maybe, and instantly he is celebrating with his father. You see, there are people in this room that, that maybe you're, you're not a Christ follower yet or you're far from Christ and you would say today that what you know of Christianity is that it, it's this rule-based religion. It's a rule-based religion. When in reality, it's a relationship with a heavenly father. It's never been about anything that you can do. It will never be about anything that you can do. It's just simply choosing God. You know, the Bible would say in Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith not by anything that we can do. When we put our faith in the free gift of grace that he so graciously gives us, that in that moment that we start this relationship with him, the Bible says when we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. That when we confess that he takes our sins and throws them as far as the east is from the west, the minute that we choose God, it's never been about what we could do for God. You see, and maybe you're like me, and sometimes I find myself in the mindset that this son was in. That he, he once was a son, but he can no longer be a son. He had to be an employee. Don't we sometimes find ourselves in our walk with Christ where, where we think it's about doing something for God? It's about doing, 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 that we become an employee for God. When we were never intended to be an employee, we were intended to be a son and daughter of God. You see, we are not children of God, Christ followers, by the level at which we deserve to be valued, by anything that we can do, by what our culture would determine worth. It's just simply by being. You see, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and I am so close to that mommy sticker that says your kid's potty trained. You know, it's like a victory. It's like a medal that you get. I believe it. It's coming in the mail. When my son gets potty trained, it will be in the mail, and it will be like a party. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm so close. A couple of weeks ago, it's probably about a month ago now, 
we were at the 4th of July, and here at the Germantown campus, I was at a local park and helping kids raise money through inflatables. And so by the end of the day, I was, I was tired. Um, I had kind of been out in the sun all day and, you know, managing kids on inflatables. It's crazy. Um, I was a little bit tired. And, and we have a party that this couple in the church invited us to, uh, Chad and Heather Miller, and they just throw down. I mean, like, the best food you've ever had in your life. And fireworks are just insane. I won't even say because I don't even know if they're legal, right? They probably are, but it's a lot of fun. And, and I was really looking forward to getting there and just relaxing with friends and family. And, and I'm sitting there as we're eating, and I, I see my son off in the distance. And, uh, and he has that, that potty face. Do you know what I'm talking about? As a parent, many of you can relate to the potty face, you know, where he needs to use the restroom, and you can see it all over his face. And I look at him, and I say, hey, buddy, do you need, you need to go potty? He's like, yeah, Mommy, I'm holding it. I'm like, yes like way to go. And I take his hand and we work our way upstairs to the upstairs bathroom. And the whole time I'm like, you're a rock star. I'm so proud of you. You're holding it. Man, that's exactly what I want you to do. Like you're perfect. Way to go. Like all this stuff. And we get up to the bathroom and and I'm helping him go to the restroom. And what I realized in that moment as I'm taking his pants down, that his definition of holding it is a lot different than mine. Ours probably. Uh, he had kind of, you know, uh, my definition of holding it, you know, and uh, his, in his hands holding it, you know, that type. Very different. Very different. And uh, in that moment, right, I am tired, and I look at my son, and I am like, London, this is what it means to hold it. This, I know you are literally holding it, but that's not what holding it means in reference to going to the potty. Like, we do not potty on Thomas, right? That's our little language that we have, right? Little Thomas underwear. We're like, we do not potty on Thomas. We go potty in the pot. I mean, I am like, go in there, right? I'm like, I can't believe this is what this means. You know, just go in there. And he looks at me and he says, Mommy, I make you proud when I go potty. And I'm like, yes, you make me proud when you go potty. You put the potty in the potty. And then we wait and we, you know, I go through this whole thing with him. And he looks at me and he's like, Mommy, put me on the potty. Put me on the potty. So I put him on and, you know, he tries really hard and gets a little bit out. And he looks at me in that moment and he says, Mommy, are you, are you happy now? I, I went potty. Are you proud of me now? I, I, I went potty. And it was in that moment, there's this thing and it's called Mommy guilt. And it is real. And it will creep up on you and just tackle you to the ground and make you feel worthless, Right? And I look at this beautiful two-and-a-half-year-old and his beautiful eyes and his curly hair, and I just, I look at him, and I say, baby, I would be proud of you if you pooped your pants for the rest of your life. We would get you help. We would get you help. And I just start going there with him. I am just like, you're a rock star. You're a superhero. I am so proud of you. You're going to change the world one day. I mean, I just laid it on. I preached a sermon to my two-and-a-half-year-old. Like, I just, I went there with him. And he totally over his head, you know. But in that moment, God spoke to me and he said, Noel, I feel the same way about you. I feel the same way about you. 
See, in our failures and in our shortcomings and the things that culture would tell us and define to us what worth is, God has a brand new definition. It's not, it's oftentimes unconventional. It doesn't always make sense to us, but it is always unconditional. There are no conditions that apply to the level at which you are valued in the eyes of God. Just like my son in that moment, he could have done anything and I would always be proud of him. You see, God feels the same way about us. In Zephaniah, it says, that God sings and dances over us, his people, his creation. It's never about what we can do for him. It's always been about choosing him. He doesn't need us for anything, but yet he allows us to choose him. The level at which you are valued in God is often unconventional. It won't fit in the box that we create. And you see, sometimes it's hard for us to show grace that way, to live that way, because we find ourselves in that box ourselves. We try to put ourselves in the box, that conventional grace, that conventional love, the the level at which we deserve to be valued has to rise and fall based on our performance. But in reality, it's not that way at all. And the truth of the matter is that oftentimes we find ourselves being employees for God. What can we do for him? How can we please him? What are the things we can accomplish? Can we get good church attendance? Can we pray enough? Can we fast? All those things are extremely important, but it is never about what you can do for God. We, we are Christ followers. We are children of God, not by the level at which you deserve to be valued, but simply because you are simply because you chose God. And I believe that there are people here and and all across our campuses and online that you would find yourself striving to be for God. That you would find yourself working to be for God. Trying to create something or be good enough for God. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him in your whole way to church today or at our campuses or online. You stumbled across this. If you did, hallelujah, uh, you know. But if you stumbled across this and you created this speech the whole way here, the, the whole time, hey God, I, I know you want me to worship you, but hey, don't you know, don't you know you were there when I had that conversation, when I chose that attitude? Hey, and we create, we bring with us our issues, we bring with us our failures, we bring with us the things that would say that we're valuable or not, and God would simply say, yes, it is unconventional and it may not make sense to you, but it is always unconditional and there is nothing you can do but choose to be. So all across this room today, across our campuses, if everyone could bow your head and and just close your eyes for a brief moment. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, that's you, and and you're far from Christ. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that when we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, that that's when this relationship starts. So here in a few moments, I'm going to pray. And and as I do, I encourage you to have a genuine conversation with God. Confess. The Bible says, again, we confess that he's faithful and just to forgive. Turn your direction and return to God. And I promise you, he'll meet you right where you're at. 
And then there are those of us in this room and, and across our campuses that would feel like you've been an employee for God for far too long. And I want to pray for you today, but as I do, I just, I just want to see the people that we'll be praying for. Our campus pastors are going to just open their eyes and, and see who, who we're praying for today. If that's you, I just want you to lift your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Hands going up all over the Germantown campus, and I'm sure at our other campuses as well. Let's take a moment and just give that to God. Return to God. Lift your head a little bit more today because he is freely given so that we don't have to do. We just have to choose him. Jesus, we come before you today. And God, I thank you for the individuals in this room that are having a genuine conversation with you. Lord, I just pray in this very moment that you would surround them. God, that your grace that you so freely give, that, Lord, they would literally be able to feel it, God. The peace that passes all understanding, Lord, I pray it would surround them as they have this genuine conversation with you. And Heavenly Father, for those of us in this room, God, that have been an employee for you for far too long, God, I just pray that your peace would be with them, God. Would you remind them today that they don't have to do anything to be in relationship with you. They just simply have to choose. So God, would your grace just surround us today? Would you remind us today that you truly are our heavenly father? And this isn't some rules-based religion that we follow, God, but it's a relationship that we pursue, God. And when we fall down and we skin our knees, God, and we, we mess up, Jesus, your grace is good enough, big enough to see us all the way through our humanity, God. So I just pray that you would surround us today and remind us of who you truly are. It's in your mighty name I pray, amen.